From the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast, and it is time for the Friday Roundtable here at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca, and wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, the Craig Needles Podcast is powered by our friends over at Downtown London and at the Covent Garden Market. Join me here in studio to talk about the issues of the week this week are the Deputy Mayor of London, Sean Lewis, is here, activist Moshe Day Cox, joining us as well, and uh, former Green Party candidate Carol Dick. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to have you here. Hello. Happy March. Yeah, it's March 1st, which is uh, unbelievable to say, even though February, for some reason, had an extra day in it this year. Uh, But yeah, it's March 1st, and it it, it feels springish outside. It's going to feel even more springish on the weekend, which uh, which I'm excited about. I understand that... There are some reasons that it feels unseasonably warm. It's best not to think about them. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get to uh, uh, the issues of the week. And the, the, the big thing of the week, of course, was the, the final debate, final discussion surrounding the city of London's budget. Uh, and, and Sean, of course, you were there. I'll ask you about this. Uh, there were a lot of business cases that came before you. Uh, there were some things that changed with this budget. You, you wound up uh, doing a little bit more funding for transit than you thought you were going to, a little bit more funding for the library. Of course, people on those boards have been on this podcast saying, oh, yeah, a little bit more is good, but not quite enough. There, there, there's been some heat that's come your way. What's, what's your response to this budget being done and, and the heat that has come uh, uh, the way of you and your colleagues with, uh, with some of the choices that have been made here? Well, I would say, you know, to start, budgets are always about choices. There, there can be value and merit to every business case submitted. You're never going to fund every business case from a property tax base at the municipality. And a lot of the discussion needs to continue to have, and this needs to happen in the community too, what level of government is responsible for what? Because, you know, I, I heard, you know, people at a public participation meeting on, on uh, Tuesday night saying fund education. We don't fund education at the city level. Yeah. Fund healthcare. We don't fund healthcare at the city level. Um, so th- there's that piece to it. Um, listen, am I happy with 8.7? No. It's too high. It's going to impact a lot of families, especially people on fixed incomes, um, and, and especially seniors on fixed incomes who, who may be in their home and, and not have a housing cost in terms of uh, a mortgage anymore, but still have the housing cost of uh, property taxes, which... CPP and OAS are, are not keeping pace with. So uh, the work begins now to start looking at ways to, to bring the years, uh, the subsequent years of this budget down um, and find ways to do things differently. Um, that means we can save some money. Um, but I will tell you, honestly, Craig, at the end of the day, um, I, I didn't feel a lot of, you know, quote unquote heat. Okay. There are people with a lot of different opinions. Um, I had as many, in fact, I received a message uh, through Facebook last night uh, from a Linda who lives in the Marconi neighborhood in my ward, who, who said, you know, basically, great job on the budget. I wish it was lower, but we need police. Um, so that was somebody who was watching and following along and, and, you know, was supportive. Yeah, I had, I had a phone call yesterday with another fellow uh, in the neighborhood who didn't agree with it. But that's the thing. This is a city of half a million people. There are a variety of opinions out there. Um, And the other piece to this is that this budget only builds on the work of the previous budget. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I've said this repeatedly. In the last multi-year budget, the prior council 
invested over $96 million in housing and homelessness initiatives. That money hasn't stopped being invested. It's just in the base budget now. So you don't see it as a separate business case because it's just part of the business we do now. We put another $10 million into the roadmap for 3000 We put money into uh, the community housing subsidy so that the uh, community partners we have, the Homes Unlimited and the Odell Jelnas and those folks, so they don't lose RGI units in this city because their other choice was going to be convert to market rent. Um, so all of those things come into play. And I think uh, overall we made the best investments we could have building on the previous budget in the three biggest areas of concern in this community, policing and community safety, housing and homelessness, and then transit. And listen, I was a dissenter on transit uh, in the committee, mm -hmm. but I supported it yesterday at council because we did our committee work at committee. That's where the, the democratic vote of council landed. And I'm okay with that. I still have concerns about how transit money is being allocated. I, I'm not saying that they're sitting on a big slush fund of unspent money. I believe they're spending every dime uh, that they get. I just don't think they're spending it very efficiently. And so that's something that I'm going to continue. Doing the, are, are we going to do the, the audit? There? I'm still going to be pursuing a okay. performance audit to, to see, talk about routing efficiencies, talk about the structure of the organization and whether it's modern and efficient, those things. Because when an organization gets a 49% base increase, and says that not one nickel of that will lead to a single new service enhancement. And in fact says at 49% increase to our base budget, we may have to cut some services. That's a substantive amount of money and some questions need to be asked about are we spending our money there wisely or not. Um, but that's a process for another day. Mm. And council decided to invest in some more service growth hours. That was the decision of committee. So I respected that yesterday. I didn't pull it. I didn't try and, and reverse that. Um, we did our committee work at committee and transit does play a valuable role in this community. I've never disputed that. So I was willing to support it moving forward. I, I will pursue other avenues in terms of seeing if the performance measures are where they need to be. Uh, but that's what it comes down to is there are 14 members of council and the mayor. We all have different opinions on, on what is the most merit. We had some votes and this is where we landed. Um, do I wish it was lower? Yes. Do I wish that the province and the federal government would stop downloading things on us? Yes. Um, can I change provincial legislation? No. Do I get to look at line by line itemization of spending in the police budget? No. That's provincial legislation. Do I even get the final say on the police budget? No. Section 39 of the Police Services Act says the Ontario Civilian Police Commission ultimately gets the final say on our police budget. So. There's a lot of things that are, are just not in council's control when it comes to this mm -hmm. budget. We don't control the interest rates at the Bank of Canada. We don't control inflation, and we're not immune to those things, and that's why the number's as high as it is. Uh, there's a few things I want to uh, put to you on police, but I want to ask uh, Mojde first for, for your reaction to the budget. And, we, you know, we get 8.7%. Obviously, there was some concern in the community about which things became the priorities. What did you think of what we came up with? I think we need to take a better pulse on what community is deeming the most vital issues to address by through our budget. Mm -hmm. uh, we heard that loud and clear, actually, from the library to the slew of community-based agencies who wrote really impactful statements to the countless public uh, meetings that I think filled the room. I wasn't there. Oh, it was. In it person. was busy. So, you know, what my concern is is. Do does this council voted in at under twenty five percent of voter turnout 
um, understand the implications of not listening to these community voices when we so, get said uh, at no, the expense. If I could just finish my thought. Thank you for that, Sean. I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, but I would like to finish my thought on, you know, I, th- I think we need to take a better finger uh, uh, and have a different pulse on what community is deeming important. Um, just what, maybe 45 minutes ago, a London Free Press uh, article came out about the deep cuts to London Cares and Safe Space. And so, you know, similarly to thinking about what jurisdiction certain funding will fall under, we have to think about where responsibility and accountability lies when we deem specific issues important and whose voices we're listening to. When we're looking at a council of 20, less than 25% vote come to uh, a vote like we did last night about not budging at all, not, you know, if we're seeking input, we have to respect the input that comes through and consider it in a, in a deeper way than I think happened when it came to the police budget. Similarly to the jurisdiction, I'll, I'm gonna wrap up in mm-hmm. a second. Similar to the jurisdiction issue, I, sh- I should finish that thought is, uh, we have to consider w- one main thing, whose job is it to do the s- specific things that we need to happen in community right now? When are police going to house homeless people experiencing homelessness? Are, are We have had an increase in, in police presence in the downtown core and we haven't had really the impact that we wish to see when it comes to the the concerns that the city has so really and truly where we invest it really stems from what we value the most and i think that policing isn't uh at the top of our values or shouldn't be anyway considering the deep crises that we're navigating right now so it is one thing to say council needs to listen that doesn't mean that we are going to agree. It's not that they're not being heard, but that council chooses to go a different direction is not not listening to people. It is making a decision based on facts. And, and what you heard at a public participation meeting on Tuesday night, 74 people, is a slim number of people who have engaged with me. Um, respectfully, like you didn't hear what was said at the by the 65 or so people who attended the town hall meeting in my ward last month. Uh, or the feedback I got knocking on 10,000 doors a year ago in an election. So to say that council isn't listening to people, I think is really not fair. Because we didn't go do what the 74 people, and not all of them were in agreement, but what the people who said, and, and let's be honest, what they were essentially saying was defund the police, because all we were doing was creating a budget hole if we changed the police budget. Because again, we're not the final say on this right so if we take away from the police budget we're being really irresponsible because all that happens is this goes to an appeal and in six months we have to send people a second tax bill for an even higher amount but just because we didn't do what the people in the gallery wanted doesn't mean we're not listening to Londoners. so i will say two things on that and then i know carol i want carol to get into too <laughs> i will say two things on that one uh there, there, I know there was some thought of okay, just like send it to to OCPC and see where the chips fall. I'm willing to to spend the money to say okay, you guys don't need a training center. However, I will say this: even Olivia Chow in Toronto was staring down the barrel of OCPC and said, "You know what? We're not going to do this." And that was for over a fight over less money. I grant you that, but the same result happened. And this is something I think needs to be addressed from a systemic perspective. 
the ability of municipalities to pay these large policing bills when police services boards come and say, hey, we want to do this, that needs to be considered here. And, and, and Carol, I don't know where you're at on that part of the conversation, but I think that that is an issue because I do think ability to pay wasn't necessarily highly considered when we come to here's a, here's a bill for $672 million. Yeah. Well, for me, I mean, there's so many different issues that have been going back and forth right (laughs) now that I'd love to address. First of all, I want to say, yeah, it's a big tax hike, but we are obviously paying the price for the situation that started under a previous mayor. And we obviously have to catch up. And one lesson we should learn from this is never to do that again. It is really a false present when you say, oh yeah, we're not going to increase property taxes because you are absolutely going to be paying through the nose later on and mm-hmm. all your services are going to be completely gutted. Then everybody's going to be fighting each other and you're going to have this situation where groups that should be working together are going against each other and fighting against each other. It shouldn't be that, you know, transit and the library and the police are all, you know, trying to scramble to get a limited amount of funds when obviously we have a number of crises happening in our city. So that's number one. Um, Number two, of course, is we have this situation that Sean already mentioned that a lot is being downloaded onto the cities and this is totally unacceptable. And it is causing so many problems because if you are constantly painting your walls instead of fixing the roof that's leaking, (laughs) you are never ever gonna fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's the situation we have right now, particularly with our provincial government that is gutting everything and putting it onto the cities and the cities are madly scrambling. So that. For me, the larger issue with the police budget is looking at what kind of police are we wanting to create. Um, And so for me, you know, just that it came out at the same time as the Dubai story, I looked into what other major cities have two or more labs. Um, In 2020, it was only Toronto and Calgary. Does London really need that second lab? I don't know. The body cameras, it's sort of changing the culture of our police. And that was more of the issue for me. It's like, if we are going to pay this price and and we have to increase our taxes, is this the police force that I want to see? Something that's much more Americanized and militarized. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily what I would want to see. I think it's much more important. And again, this is dependent on the province and on the the, the federal government. Uh, if we take away the services that prevent people from ending up in a crime situation, like, for instance, um, causing libraries to have to close down when that is a safe space for children who might be struggling at home with violence and other situations or newcomers that have just come and that's how they're learning English or people who are unable to afford internet and that's how they can search for jobs and keep in contact. I mean, those are things that are vital to a community. And for me, that's where I would want to see more of the money going because I guarantee that four years from now, we're probably still going to have the same crime levels and the same problems if we can't fix the root problem. Um, but again, it has to come from the province, the city, and the federal yeah, government. So even on the libraries, for 30 years, the Ontario government has frozen its contribution mm-hmm. to the public library systems in this province. So it's not just cities that pay for yeah. libraries. No, but the that, province just because they do, it doesn't mean the yeah, cities can also go The province has the trend, a contribution though, right? too. Yeah. No, 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 the city is giving more than double to the library in this budget what it got in the last four years and in fact more than double what it got since 2010. The city's not cutting the library budget they're not freezing the library budget the library didn't get everything it asked for 
But the city cannot backfill 30 years of frozen contributions yeah. from the province. It's just not feasible on property taxes. We don't get income taxes. Yeah. We mm-hmm. don't get consumer taxes, which are a much more fair form of taxation, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. With property taxes are the most regressive, and I think we all agree on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's nodding. Like, property yeah. taxes is the suckiest form of taxation we have in this country. Um, but it's what the cities have to rely on. But I, I want to pick up on what you were talking about, about the type of police force, Carol, because I think that that's an important piece of the conversation that has not gotten a fair shake. And and Craig had the chief on last weekend. Mm-hmm. I highly and, recommend and, you listen to that, by the way. It's a great yes, podcast. It is and a great one. I'm not going to repeat everything that was said, but um, the lab has been deployed 15 times already this calendar year mm-hmm. because we're experiencing more active shooter situations and, and reports of gun crime and those kind of things. Um, he talked about the 20-person dedicated unit both sworn officers and civilian investigative staff who will be supporting investigations into sexual assaults and domestic partner, intimate partner violence, which we know has become an epidemic uh, in not just in London, but mm-hmm. in the country and needs to be addressed. And we don't have people with the specialized training to do that right now. So part of his budget is to have the specialized training, a 20 person unit, the coast unit, um, the crisis mental health workers who respond to police on mental health calls so that once it's safe, the mental health worker can deal with the mental health issue. The police officer can move on and it's no longer a policing issue. There's an extra $400,000 each and every year to expand the post coast program year after year. So those are things that, you know, as much as people are criticizing the police budget, I think those actually speak to investments people want to see in our community. We want perpetrators of sexual assault and domestic violence to face the consequences and and to be successfully charged to to have that investigation be successful so that it doesn't happen to anybody else we want police to not be first responders on mental health now right now provincial legislation requires them to but we can send a mental health worker with them Mm-hmm. And once they have responded, then that mental health worker can take on the role and the police officer can leave. So that is a response to the mental health crisis in our community. And, um, and yes, police aren't going to house the homeless. And, and sorry, Craig, I'm, yeah, no, I'm, go, I'm going on at length here. No, but okay. um, they're also social service agencies are not going to stop the, there's no nice way to say this, the scum who are running human trafficking rings in this city. Or the people who are are bringing in drug trafficking and gun trafficking stuff, um, those bad guys are are not going to stop being bad guys with investment in social services. The only way we get them is by resourcing the police to do these what are labor very labor intense investigations, often multi jurisdictional because like these human traffickers aren't just operating in London. They're like anyway. I, so they're it's really labor intense. It's really uh, requires a lot of time and energy on the people side. And so if we're not putting those resources in, we're not going to get those things broken well, up. And so... Yeah. I mean, I agree with all of that. And I think that everyone would agree we want to get the response times down. There has been yeah, a lot of yeah. people that have had a lot of trouble, especially I've heard of seniors that were attacked in their homes and then the police weren't able to come. And obviously the human trafficking is a huge problem. And I've seen that through my campaigns, talking to the different organizations. All of those are good things, but I still think that there has to be a point when people can ask, yes, but um, do we really need this part? I mean, obviously, more mental health resources within the police is important. It's the other things like, 
Yeah, body cams. It's just the changing body cams of- that can be turned off. The training center, yeah. the the new round, the tasers, that stuff. Yeah. I think, like, because I, I I don't. I so think would most you rather people- have officers have tasers or guns? Well, and well, I thought about that too. Do you want tasers or guns? But it's just, yeah. Uh, I will say this. I think most people in the community, not everybody, obviously. But most people can, in our community can wrap around our heads around, hey, response times are too long and police officers overworked. Is that fair to say, most yeah. day? Would you agree with that, Carol? Yeah. yeah. So, okay, I think most people can wrap their heads around that. So the question is, what do you do about it? And I think, hey, hire more police officers to investigate sex assault cases. Sounds good to me. I'll see you there. I think that makes a ton of sense. But I think there needs to be, and, and I, I wanted to talk more about this with the, with the chief and Ali Shabar when they were here uh, you know, earlier in the week. There needs to be, I think, more commitment from police chiefs in this province to say, take stuff off of our plate. We don't want there to be legislation that says the police have to go to, you know, scene X first or scene Y first. If there's uh, a, a domestic dispute where there's no weapons involved, there's someone who's uh, struggling with mental health, make it so that we don't have to be the first ones to go. Most do, do you think I'm making sense there? Absolutely. Yeah. That does make sense. And one missing analysis, which is I'm taking this in a different direction sure. here because i got to get this in. What we're seeing is a pattern that we've seen globally for a long time. So let's zoom out of London, Ontario, and look at Canada as a whole. And when we're looking at, you know, one of the highest household debts in the G7 countries, we're looking mm-hmm. at nationwide climate-driven disasters. We're looking at interest rates and not just an affordability crisis deep austerity and clawbacks at all levels of government on community supports that are necessary at the cost of having to support things like police funding. This isn't a new pattern of behavior. Deep deep austerity, we are starving a nation of their social safety nets and then ensuring that we instill more police in communities. This is a pattern that we've seen globally and we have to be aware that now we are a part of that pattern as Canada, as a country. When we're dealing with as deep of an economic crisis as we are right now, we should in fact expect, do I agree with it? Absolutely not. But if I paid attention to history, I would know that when a government goes to the extent that they have gone, we can expect to see more of a militant police state. And we have to have this analysis in order to counter it. So I I thank you for saying that your observation, Carol, is that it's going from, you know, community-based policing to a far more militant approach. That's quite intentional. And we see this patterns since structural adjustment policies were imposed by the World Bank and the IMF. We have to zoom out and look at ourselves as a part of a far more intricate global system and patterns that that we're a part of. And I I think that this is a pretty scary thought to think about. I think that's fair. The trajectory we're going in. Especially from this perspective. Yes. And and this is kind of, and council is handcuffed. This is not something London City Council can, can solve. But I think that there is a lack of creativity and a lack of vision when it comes to making these types of funding decisions. Yes. Uh, that, again, London City Council is not going to be able to solve on their own. But what I would like to see is police chiefs and mayors and elected councillors and mental health professionals stand up and say, look, province of Ontario, the way that we've got this set up right now is not good for anybody. And I know the chief came here and said, well, this is only, I think he said roughly 5% of calls are, are, are mental health. And yeah, that's fine. Let's take the 5% of calls off their plate then. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that I, that's that's at least worthy of a conversation here. So uh, I think that there's been a lack of creativity in solving some of these issues. Again, what, Sh- what Sean says, 
when, hey, we've got guys who are human traffickers, we've got guys who are smuggling guns, and, and London is a place where, where, where that's happening, and the chief comes and says, hey, we want to put a stop to that, we need some people to do that. Totally agree. Yes. Totally agree. But there are some things that the police shouldn't be dealing with that there are. And no matter what percent you want to assign to it, we have not shown enough creativity as a society in order to address those things. And council should also employ their creativity in thinking about how they're going to address multiple layers of government as their response to many of their decisions is offloading to municipalities. Mm-hmm. What is the strategy? Enough isn't, we've heard that. Analysis. So what do you we say to the Ford you. government then, What's Sean? the strategy? And, and that's the thing. London alone doesn't say anything to the Ford government. It's through AMO and through FCM. And we have strong and representation those, there. And so what's those, the strategy? Through those joint organizations where mm-hmm. municipalities come together, that's where we lobby. That's where we push both the province and the feds. Um, I will say more so the province because obviously more of you, the you direct responsibilities. Yes. It's, it's a more it's a closer relationship, mm-hmm. right? Um, not that the feds don't have a piece, and we've seen them start to respond a little bit with some of the housing accelerator funding and stuff. But I, I just had a conversation uh, with Minister Flack this morning. We were at an affordable housing announcement, um, and, and he said, "You know, I know you guys aren't happy that you're not getting the building uh, faster funding." And I said, yeah, and, and we've got a problem here because we've got something like the central building, which is now the, the tallest building in London. Now yep. it's not occupied yet, but that's units under mm-hmm. construction. But does that count for each individual apartment in there? No. You know what it counts for? One unit. And, and for there, they're using um, CMHC units of measurement. So they're actually using a federal measurement at a provincial level to actually disqualify municipalities from getting funding to deal with our infrastructure problems. So he said, yeah, we got to change that. We got to, so we had a discussion face to face this morning and he said, that's a great point. Let's so when you say, here's how many people are moving to downtown London and you point out Centro, yeah. which I walk by on my way to work every morning and walk past on my way home every afternoon, it's coming along good. They, that counts as one unit? From the perspective of qualifying for the infrastructure funding, the make whole funding for our infrastructure from the province, that counts as one unit because that CMHC counts that project as one unit, not as uh, not as hundreds of units. It counts it as one project. That is, stupid. and so and Minister Flack said, you know what? That's a great point. Um, and he said, let's. I mean, we were at an event, so we couldn't go talk in great detail. But he already committed to sit down and meet with me and d- discuss more how we address the fact that this is counting as one unit. And I appreciate him doing that. So there's the one-on-one conversations that happen, as well as the broader framework of AMO and, and FCM and those things. And, and part of it is that relationship building to go and share with with the local representatives, hey, here's what we're actually dealing with. Because, I mean, they're away half the year too, right? Whether it's Queen's Park or whether it's Parliament in Ottawa, um, they're not always here with their feet on the ground. So um, it is a slow process, but it comes back to, uh, and I, I know this has been said before on this podcast. I know the mayor said it in multiple media outlets too. We're working with a 150-year-old tax system here. It's got to change. Municipalities need a new municipal framework. There is a lot we can do if provinces and the federal government want to make us the frontline contractor, for lack of a better term, to deliver services if they flow funding through to us. But we can't do it on property taxes. So the biggest lobby effort, and you're seeing AMO talk about it, you're seeing FCM talk about it, is we need to change the tax system. We need to move away from property taxes 
and we need to move towards a more fair revenue sharing mechanism where municipalities receive a share of income and, and consumer taxes mm -hmm. so that we can fund those things. And I remember Jack Layton doing this with the gas tax transfer and saying to the federal government years ago, a, a cent of that needs to go to the municipalities to fund transit. Now, that money did come. Unfortunately, there's so many strings attached that you're very limited in how you can use it for transit, which hampers our expanding our transit service. But that's the kind of discussion we have to have is we need dedicated, sustainable funding, not having to go hand cap in hand every year to a granting process or another application process that requires weeks of staff time to put together to hopefully qualify for a grant. No, we need sustainable, permanent, reliable funding that gives municipalities the flexibility to make decisions that are not one size fits all, but can be a little different municipality to municipality, depending on the needs of the community. And forward thinking, because if you're constantly doing that and you're never sure what you're going to be getting and you have to apply for it every single time, it's very difficult to start making plans for 10 years out, 20 <sighs> years out. And that is the, the problem that I see just, you know, at the municipal level, also at the provincial and federal level is there's, it's, it's in these four year chunks and you can't really do much with that. And for a municipality in particular, it's very stressful when they don't have that source of income that is well and things change too right i yes. mean look at the 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 change that happened with brt because of the covid impacts and now yep. it's not cost overruns it's inflationary pressure on these projects mm -hmm. and so now where the municipality was like on on the hook for one third we're almost at half of the cost now because the feds and province have said no we've given you what you know you were responsible for any increase in costs mm -hmm. and now that inflationary pressure has hit and we're responsible for those cost increases. Uh, Moj, I want to ask you about this because the accountability piece is, is is huge here. People are saying, "Hey, are we going to get what we're what we're paying for with uh, with with this policing investment?" That's kind of the main one. Obviously, people are talking about it's the biggest one. Uh, the chief comes on this podcast and sits in the very chair you're sitting in right now and mm -hmm. says, uh, "I'm going to be at council uh, at, at once a year. I'll come once a quarter. I think even he said." Uh, and give them the updates on, you know, here's here's what's happening in London. Here's here's where we're uh, seeing positives. Here's where we're seeing things that we need to grow, whatever it happens to be. But he, he says he's going to be accountable here and he says he's going to be accountable to the community. Does that do anything for you? Does that change uh, how we feel about making this type of large investment where someone says, OK, I'm going to stand behind this and, and, and show people they're getting value for the money? Yes. So I always appreciate the way that the, um, the city extends uh, additional supports, and I'm going somewhere with okay. this, uh, to community agencies, uh, community nonprofits, through a pretty, uh, I think, focused process, in which case these small, very small agencies, no one's making any money like a foundational incoming police officer is, just to name that. Uh, these folks have to have a really elaborate plan, um, note to the penny where money is going, and then substantiate it through a very deep report back to the city. So I'd love for the city to match that energy mm -hmm. for the police. It's yeah. not enough. The quarterly is not, although I have to say, I'm, I'm going to pay a little closer attention before I say fully that I still feel it's not enough under this chief's um, yeah. uh, purview because I have not seen and nor did I 
pay attention deeply enough to a quarterly report. He seems report. like a guy that's going to stand and take the music to me. I don't know yeah. how you feel about him. But so yeah. I, I don't, we don't know yeah. enough about him yet. Mm-hmm. And I want to give him a chance to show his leadership uh, and, 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 and tell us how he's going to do things. So uh, in the past, I, I, I wasn't particularly phased by a police report because they're not as intricate. So right. match the energy right. to the level of scrutiny that a, an organization like Safe Space or London Cares Mm-hmm. has to prove right. sure. and substantiate why they're yep. getting that funding and in which case then the city decides do you are you extended renewed and it's deeply scrutinized as it should be this yeah. is money yeah um maybe shouldn't be to that extent maybe lighten up on on some of the community programs so i want to say match that energy yeah. it's not enough sean do you think that we'll be able to match that energy do you think chief strong's gonna be able to do that so i'm gonna say this about chief Trong. um i I'm incredibly impressed with the level of transparency he has shown to me directly in sitting down and and talking to me and walking through plans and explaining operationally why he needs to do these things. Um, I think it was, you know, I don't think there's ever been a police chief who's come in on a Sunday afternoon and spent an hour talking to a local media outlet like this one. (laughs) No, not as a first for me. To walk through things. This individual chief has shown more willingness to be transparent to engage to come out to ward meetings talk to residents directly than i've ever seen in the the, all the years i've been in london and i like i you know i got here in the mid 90s i've never seen a police chief so willing to engage come out and talk as much as he can now we are not going to see the same level of transparency that you get from every organization and actually i would say even we don't see at council, like we don't see the details of the contract for London Cares. Staff may review them, but we don't. Um, that no. doesn't come to council. Um, and the same thing with the uh, police is operationally, there are things that have to be provided in camera um, because of the integrity of, of an ongoing operational process. So for the safety of an officer who may be undercover, for uh, even just things like like sectors of deployment for traffic enforcement. It compromises the integrity of trying to enforce the Highway Traffic Act when you tell people where the speed traps are going to be. Sure. No, I get that. Um, You know, I don't even like the fact that the province makes us put up signs that say photo radars in use in school zones. I would just like to put them up and and, and have them in every school zone. Instead, we got to put up signs and give 90-day warnings and all of that. Um, So there are some integrity of the operation pieces and the safety of, of people involved that will not be part of the public record but I believe and I take the chief at his word that he is going to come to council and he is going to provide us updates and he is going to tell us where progress is happening and and I hope he's also honest about where they're struggling to make progress Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. I I mean traffic enforcement let's see some progress there we know that the roads have become kind of the wild west we see it in the the motor vehicle Mm -hmm. collisions we see it in the pedestrian vehicle collisions we see it in the cyclist vehicle collisions um and and the enforcement is down because we don't have enough officers doing that work anymore as the city's grown uh, and frankly as they've been redeployed to 911 calls so i want to see those statistics i want to see the response times from 911 uh going down i want to see uh, you know, an increased success when police investigate uh, domestic violence complaints, that charges are being laid, that they're not being dismissed, um, that those resources are proving to be moving the needle. Is it going to move the needle in a year? No. Um, do I expect to see some improvements in a year when the chief comes before us? Yes. 
uh, you know, if the call times, if the 911 response call times on a code two have gone from eight hours to five hours or three hours, I'll accept that as progress being made. Um, it doesn't mean there won't be still be work to do, but it, I'll accept that as progress being made. And so that's the kind of thing I'm going to be looking for in the accountability. And, and I think that the chief has been genuine in his willingness to come before us. The very fact that we got business cases broken out the way we did this time, they didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. They could have submitted a global budget ask. This is our dollar amount. This is officers. This is equipment. And that's it. Like they didn't have to be uh, providing the level of transparency they did in this ask. They didn't have to? No. They, yeah, but like but they ethically, did. They, they, they ethically and, and morally, yeah. like, they to the didn't chief, have to. To the chief, like credit, he yeah. provided more detail yeah. in this budget business case than I've ever seen in a police budget business case before. The measure of accountability, though, cannot be placed on the chief. I'm sure the chief is a lovely human being. I'd love to get to know more about him, as I am looking out for over the, the, the you know, he's only been in... in less than a year. He's yeah, been here less about than uh, a year. nine months or so, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so I want to give him a chance. So this, But I, I don't think that this is a conversation about the chief. The layer of accountability when the municipal budget is as sure. grand as it is, going directed at the police, it is the responsibility of the source of that funding to sure. request a certain level of transparency. I agree. And I was so going I to want to... Di- I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, this deflecting around like the chief is wonderful. This is great, but I think that but we he, need to he's going to be the face of it though, because he's the one that's in charge of the organization. But I, I, I want to get to your point because I think you're right. Uh, and 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 Sean knows this. I'm not telling. I'm not going to say anything. Sean doesn't know. If there isn't demonstrable improvement in things like response times and things like traffic enforcement and things like you know weapons, uh, uh, weapon smuggling and, and 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 human trafficking and things along those lines. Uh, that's going to be a problem for, for Sean and his colleagues who voted for this because people are going to say, hey, my property taxes went up 5% and what am I getting for it? But Sean's aware of that. Like you're going to, you have to yep. wear how this goes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, that's the thing is at the end of the day, it's not going to be, I don't think, it's not going to be the chief of police that has to wear how this goes or even the police services board. It's going to have to be members of council and we'll, we'll see. And three years from now or uh, two and a half years from now, I guess, Londoners are going to have a chance to weigh in on this. I think, though, that one thing that has to be acknowledged here, and I know that on Twitter it seems like a different world, but this is true. Uh, for every person who was angry about the way that the budget conversation went, there was somebody who was happy about it. Like, th- th- like that, that's, that's just the, the, the reality of the world that we live in, I, I, and I think that's true. I think that there are, there are people in this city that are thrilled to see, hey, we're going to hire 93 police officers. They think that's a great plan. That's, so uh, it's, it's just too early to say whether this is going to be something that's, that, that's negative, positive, whatever, from an electoral perspective, because it it's, it's two and a half years out. I don't know. It's 30 months away. We'll see. It is a great reflection of our community-based values and priorities, though. Oh, and, sure. And a good reflection oh, on yeah. whether we're... People are passionate. That's good. I like that. Yeah. 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 So that, should we be concerned about those values is my, my and, thing. And that's, and, and that's um, the thing. I think that... The, but people are passionate, I think, on... on two sides of the conversation here because there are there are passionate people who would say hey when my house is broken into and I called the police and they didn't show up for five days that's unacceptable to me there are people who are passionate about that too of course and that's the, that's the thing is just sadly they're not getting a guarantee that this increase in budget is going to address that, that and there's is, no accountability to prove that, that any level of increase in police budgeting has actually helped right and that's the thing right there is if that doesn't improve 
yeah. people are going to say, the, my taxes went up 5% and why did they? That's and right. that's 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 going to be how this gets adjudicated 30 months from now. Yep. Absolutely. And, and the onus and, is not yeah. on the police chief. The onus is on the, the source of funding to oh, declare and demand a certain level of accountability. I, I agree. I think that the onus is on the police chief to run the organization in a way in which... Of course. Yeah, because he's, he's... The reporting. At, the yes, accountability yeah. and reporting. You've, you've asked for $672 million, You've got to make it work. Yes. Yeah. That's, and, and, yeah. Yeah. And operationally, you know, if... If these don't deliver results, we can recall members of the board. Yeah. We absolutely can. It was the board that brought forward this budget to us, and we can recall those members and replace them with other individuals. We can have uh, the Office of the Independent Police Review Directorate uh, do an internal audit of, of the police operations and why they got this money and didn't. There are mechanisms by which we can pursue accountability if this money does not deliver on the results we've been told it will give us. Well, I, I, I'm fascinated to see how this goes. But again, this is going to be something where we don't really know, I think, how the public as a grand, uh, as a whole, is going to feel about this. It's, it's, we're going to have to see some of this in action before I think we really get a true read on the green here. Uh, speaking of budgetary issues, the Thames Valley District School Board is having one. They are about $18.5 million in the red. Uh, my friend, and I, I think everyone here knows Kelly at least a little bit, and uh, <laughs> uh, she says that, hey, uh, Kelly Elliott, who's the former deputy mayor of Thames Center, she says maybe this is just another sign that it's time for us to ditch the school board model because it doesn't seem to be serving anybody right now. Mm. Uh, Carol, is it time to have that conversation? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I mean, there's a number of things. So I, I read through everything that Kelly had posted. Uh, my big concern is if you get rid of the school board, then is it just going to be the provincial government in charge of everything? And that to me is a terrifying prospect because I have been less than happy with the way things have gone under Stephen Lecce and the Ford government, the cuts that they've been doing. Um, you know, they, this model of having kids have to do courses online, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, it's a disaster. Um, first off, for part of the budget, let's get rid of the Catholic school board. Number one. Yes. Um, <laughs> number two. Sign me up. Uh, Sold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if we're going to do something with, you know, instead of just scrapping maybe the uh, school board, how about we look into making it actually something that is functional and has some kind of power and accountability. I mean, this is a lot of what Kelly brings up, the issues that she has with it. And she talks about the um, community meetings she had. And I went to one of those that was hosted by her and Marcus Ryan. And um, yeah, I mean, particularly in the rural areas, they are getting screwed over again and again and again by the uh, provincial government in regards to education and then the school boards as well. So there's some serious problems that need to be addressed, but maybe it's looking at the actual model of the school board because I do not, I certainly wouldn't want it to be one large body that is covering all education for all of the province. That kind of model will not work and we will see even more problems than we have now, but I'm not sure the situation that we've got right now is great either. So yeah. Yeah. Moshe, do you think that we don't need school boards anymore? Or, uh, do you want to dramatically change the model, do you think? I'd love to know when we actually looked at the model. Uh, I think Carol's on the right track. Like, when was the last time we revisited the model and the structure of our boards, uh, the function, their level was of Was it the Harris years? When authority? we kind of like took, yeah. 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 took a lot of authority away from our school boards in the Harris years, and it's just kind of been the same way ever since. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. so, again, I think it's worth revisiting around the structure and the level of authority. I don't think eliminating them, t to your point, Carol, is, is the uh, appropriate step because that local 
lens is so necessary. I think this is a byproduct of an incompetent and incapable government. Our provincial government is not qualified to do their job. And we've seen this over and over again in several different segments of what they're mandated to do. And you can argue education's the the, the the most glaring example. Absolutely. We have Well, a, maybe healthcare, but both are bad. Yeah. <laughs> what 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 qualifies this government yeah. and who they've adja- uh, uh, assigned as leader, right? Uh, to 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 inform these decisions. So, when you're looking at a no increase in the pen- in the pension plan funding, no health increase in the health benefits, no consideration for the increase in sick pay in at the like in the midst of a global pandemic, even at the time of the peak of the 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 pandemic, there was no so we're looking at an incompetent government who does not know how to make decisions around education because they are not qualified. This isn't an entire reflection on on the board itself in terms of the the, the money that they're in the red with, and and their sort of shortcomings in in how they're able to s- function. This government is running a province while they're trying to starve the education system yeah. and pressuring us to make impulsive and irrational decisions around it. So, you know, I think the real thing is is that the province needs to wake up come election time. We need to actually vote in competent, qualified governments to run a province that's in deep devastation right now because of the poor decisions of an unqualified government. Well, and you asked about what qualifies them, and, and but you hit on it. The election qualifies them. They won an election. They're democratically elected. And, I don't think that's and, the truth, and though. Whether, I, I disagree. I, think, but I don't I, think I, that I, I, But to some extent, entirely. it is in a democracy. It's uh, Now, will I... Do I disagree with, you know, the, the fact that we, like, I agree with you, we still need some local decision-making powers. We still need that local lens. I would say one of the problems we have in this region is the Thames Valley School Board in particular is way too large. And yeah. the voices of the rural communities are drowned out by the needs of the city. 100%. Um, and that's an issue. I think our rural communities should have a board that represents their communities mm-hmm. and their voice in a, in a way that doesn't make them, you know, a, a minor league player to the city. I don't yeah. think that that's fair. Um, I absolutely am all in favor of getting rid of the Catholic board. One single properly funded public board system is the way to, to find efficiencies yeah. and savings so that we can put those efficiencies and savings out of the the mid-level bureaucracy back into frontline education yeah that's how we properly fund a school system is less paper and red tape and more frontline resources and and not doubling up on everything yeah. it is such a waste with and, the doubling up and you know as much as we we're talking about the the downloading of provincial responsibilities in the last segment i would say this is one area where as a, a, a person in municipal office I would actually put up my hand and say, if you help us with the funding piece, we will help you with the delivery piece in terms of taking away the the planning building portion. Let municipalities, you know, how many times have we seen a school block in a plan of subdivision that the school board doesn't exercise its authority on after seven years? And then in 15 years, they need the block, but it's too late because it's become Mm -hmm. residential. Let municipalities play a role in planning and building the school locations so we can build complete neighborhoods from the beginning, not after the fact trying to find a piece of land to wedge a school in yeah. with 14 That would portables. save you the mess you had in Northwest London. So that would, yes. like that's one area where as a municipal person, I would stick up my hand and say, let us help you with the planning and building piece. We could do that really well. We're, we shouldn't run the school system. But boy, we can help you plan and build the schools. Yeah, because I just, I'm from the Northwest and I saw that situation when the Sherwood Forest School closed down and 
back then, I mean, that was what, 10 years ago, I said, okay, you're going to be putting in more high density housing there on a spot where there was a school. And then what are you going to need? A school. (laughs) And then, of course, we got, you know, um, the portables and still trying to rejig things. I was like, you you created a situation where you weren't forward thinking. This was a neighborhood that was turning over. The people that had lived there raised their families and now we're moving on to other homes, um, whether it was senior homes or apartments. They were now getting filled with houses with kids and they Mm. need a school. So that whole thing, that was not, that was the most ridiculous planning decision ever. Oh, and by the way, school boards. Go ahead. Sorry, school boards need a restructure for sure, and I think that uh, you know. Th- looking at setups like what Sean mentioned earlier around uh, rural representation, not necessarily creating its own board. I don't, I'm not aligned with that, but I am aligned with ensuring that that representation is, is, is effective. I, I think we need to start from the ECEs, the learning support instructors, the teachers, and listen to them about what the needs of schools are these days. I, I don't think it's enough for us to, to you know, particularly inform the restructure. What we need is a complete restructure and overhaul of our school boards. And we need to start with listening to those who are most deeply connected to the decisions that are made, whether they're poorly made decisions like the ones that you've named or, 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 um, or otherwise. But it's just, and for the rural piece, it's worth saying it's also listening to the parents because there are so many parents in the rural areas who are so frustrated by the situation that is happening out there with the the schools that are getting closed or aren't being built and their kids getting bussed like crazy distances to go to schools. Um, So it's also about listening to the needs of the parents because they they see what is important from that side as well with their Mm -hmm. kids. Well, and to come back to, and I know Marcus Ryan and and Kelly Elliott uh, have both been advocates of this too, and I agree with them completely. And to come back to the, like, let municipalities help you with the planning and building. Let's stop building schools that are just schools. Let's get more co-builds going on. You know, we talked about the library situation in the budget piece. Why are we building library branches independent of school buildings? Why are we not building them in the same community facility designation? Mm -hmm. Um, And that can, the same thing can go for arenas and pools and and childcare centers and all of those things. Let's stop thinking about schools just as a school. Let's think about them as how they're integrated with these other community services and how we actually find efficiencies by doing co-builds where these things are located together. Yeah, 100%. So in the area where my family lives in British Columbia, the pool that is for the school is also for the community. It is the community pool, but it's also the school pool. And they also have other events there. It's like everything is attached in, it's almost like community centers. And that actually is great for just intergenerational, you know, I don't know, socializing. It, it makes for a stronger community. Absolutely. It is it is better for the community in terms of, of social integration and all of those mm-hmm. things. And it's actually fiscally more responsible. Yeah. It's cheaper to do it this way. Yeah. It's well, more sustainable in the long run to do it this yeah, way. There's no point having, like, so if you have a school and it's just sitting empty all weekend because the kids aren't there, you could be having programming there. You could be teaching classes. You could, you know, have seniors come in and somebody could be teaching gardening or whatever community groups could use classrooms as meeting spaces at night exactly yeah 
uh, yeah, it it just feels like we're leaving good ideas <laughs> on the table here. Uh, I, I just want to mention the, 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 the qualification point real quick. I think there's a difference between, hey, someone's qualified to run a province by an election. Of course, everyone who gets elected is qualified to run a province by an election. But someone has the actual ability to run the province properly. <laughs> those, those are two different things. That's what things. I meant by qualification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, are, those are two different things uh, that I, I just feel like I want to make sure that we parse those things. I uh, want to wrap up real quick. I want to talk about Brian Mulroney. Uh, the former Canadian Prime Minister who uh, passed away, uh, well, was announced Thursday evening. Uh, Brian Mulroney's legacy is one of some not very good things, some very, very good things. Uh, people want to talk, circle the very good things. We could talk about how amongst Western leaders, he was uh, really um, kind of the forerunner when it comes to South African apartheid. That's very good. He had some very good environmental policy. That's very good. There were some other things that were not so good, and I'm willing to discuss that. I'm not one of those people who thinks that when somebody dies that you can only say nice things about them. Uh, the, where are we standing on the, the sort of the, the, the tributes and the legacy of Brian Mulroney that we've seen this week, Moj Day? I'd like to start by I, not discounting that he may have mentored Premier Ford. Yeah. Uh, but also I'd like Ford to take his name out of his mouth because, <laughs> I, the, you know, the difference in the level of qualification um, is, is I, I, I don't think uh, it's incomparable. Um, I do think that there is something to say about the legacy of these um, politicians that we're seeing and, and public figures that we're seeing come to their uh, end of time on this in this in this world and it, it is we're seeing a different breed of politicians now we're seeing uh, we're seeing a really different composition of what we see politics as in Canada and I feel like they're sort of the last of um, though not everything that they did politically is is something that I would agree with, but at least it they had some level of qualification to do their job. And for me, um, that's where I, I I where I go when I'm thinking about Mulroney and and some of the provincial sort of uh, news uptake on his passing. May he rest in peace. Uh, Carol or Sean, anything you want to add? Uh, yeah, actually, I would like to add something. So um, I, of course, remember when he was not liked at all prior to the 1993 election, which was uh, disastrous for the Conservative Party and sort of served as a referendum on the policies that had happened. But just on my side, if you're just to look at you know my specialization in environmental policy and law, this was a conservative who enacted the most um, stringent environmental laws in Canada, but on top of that, was doing it globally. So he acted on acid rain and the ozone layer, and he actually accepted that climate change was an issue. And right now, we have a government where if you're conservative, you have to deny all of that. And you, and you have somebody like Pierre Polyev talking about how wonderful Mulroney is at the same time that he's denying climate change. And so it's really unfortunate <laughs> that it's become politicized. We have to remember that there, there was a conservative who saw that there were problems, acted on them, and it wasn't a political issue. It didn't cause people to go on one side or the other. And they were actually able to resolve those issues. So the acid rain has vastly improved the situation there with the pollutants. We've been able to deal with 
with the ozone layer. And it's really unfortunate that the climate change issue has become hijacked um, to become this like conservative denial issue. So uh, and, and on a wider scale, this was a person who was very good at diplomacy and reaching out. So maybe a lot of people don't know that he was very much involved with Gorbachev in creating the Arctic Council, which has been very important to Canada. So um, he has quite the legacy there. Not all of it great. But from my side, I wish there were more um, people from his party or the the continuation of his party that would step up and realize that these things are important, the environmental issues for the country. Yeah, I, I'm going to pick up on that. And, and Craig, you, you said, you know, you can't, you can't um, discount some of the things that were mm-hmm. less popular. And, and I mean, I grew up in a small blue collar manufacturing town in southwestern Ontario, and we saw a lot of factories close and a lot of people lose their jobs while Mulroney was prime minister. And there was a lot of and and that was reflected in the election where his party was decimated. Yep. yep. But um, so that was a that was a negative. Um, but to to your both yours and Mojde's points, Carol, like the the environmental and, and I, I I agree. Like this this man handled an issue like climate change, uh, acid rain, ozone, those things as a statesman. And, and, and that, now it's become a, a culture war thing, which is yeah. remarkably yeah. stupid. Yeah. Just yeah. like in yeah. like and, and Reagan was, and like there's a lot of th- negative things to say about Ronald Reagan, of course. Uh, but at, at least when someone said, "Okay, we've got an acid rain problem here," and, and he and Mulroney are like, "Okay, we can work together and, and, and figure something out here," that is far, far from how it would go today. And if the same yes. type of issue yeah. approached us, I, I think he may have been, and and I don't, I don't want to say this to like downplay other prime ministers, but I think he may have been the last Canadian prime minister who truly, on the global stage, held a, a position of respect that we haven't matched since for the work he did on acid rain, for the mm. work he did on South African apartheid. I think that he brought a, a gravitas as well as a charisma to the position that really gained him respect on the global stage that I don't think we've necessarily seen in a federal prime minister since. Mm. Um, and so like everyone in public office, it is a mixed legacy. And, and we talked about this earlier. There are people passionate on both sides of every issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're gonna love some things he did and hate some things he yeah. did. But he served his country really well to the best of his ability, and and he rose above the sort of I guess dog whistle kind of politics and and mm-hmm. division, and really took issues seriously as a statesman. And I think that that's a, a loss, and and you know thoughts to his family uh, and to his legacy today. Yeah. There we go. We will uh, leave that there. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Craig Needles Podcast, which, of course, is powered by our friends over at downtown London and the Covent Garden Market. Thanks to Moj Day and Carol and Sean for doing the show with us this week. We'll talk to you next week here at ClassicRock981.com and LondonNewsToday.ca. The Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. 